I wasn't paid to be here. <laughs> so it's that good. I love it. Take Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. I'm just going to read these passages in just a minute. I'm not actually going to preach them, uh, but I do want to read it to you to give you a foundation of what I'm talking about uh, this morning. We're starting a new series called God and Country. So buckle up. Um, uh, here's my prayer going in, that I won't offend you in an ungodly way. If I offend you in a godly way, I'm fine with that, uh, really. I mean, if, if for some reason that we get stirred up, um, I, I'm just going to ask you to pray about what God would speak to your hearts and in your lives in the weeks ahead. Uh, we're doing a four or five maybe part series. When I originally designed this, it was a four-part series leading into the election. I'm actually going to be gone one of the Sundays now because I'm going uh, to Albania in a couple weeks. So I may finish it after the election because we may need some follow-up care uh, after whatever happens, happens. So, uh, but today I want to talk about, I want to talk about God and country and I, I want to speak of it in this way, in that order, in that order, God and country. Um, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, last Friday night, I was in Colorado. I take an annual trip where I go with a group of pastors and pray together. And my brother and I, we come out of the mountains, and we usually stay an extra night. And we stay in Denver. Uh, we like baseball, so we always go to uh, a, a Rockies game. This past two weeks ago, Friday, it was one of their last home games, and they had fan appreciation night. And here's what was going on at Fan Appreciation Night after the game. Fireworks going crazy. I mean, it was a really fun fireworks display. Now, you can't hear in the background, um, but this is in the baseball park, and music is blaring, but the, the fireworks are so loud you can't hear the music. They're playing John Philip Sousa, Stars and Stripes, for how long? You know the name of the song? Stars and Stripes, forever, forever. I, I want to challenge that just a little bit today, uh, that indeed that it is not going to be forever. And that is a key factor in our worship and our view of our country in relationship to the kingdom of God. Are you with me? So uh, at that uh, thing, they were, you know, it's what? I think it was September the 30th was the date that I was there. and um, It wasn't 4th of July, but every song that they were playing was patriotic because there's something about fireworks that we associate with 4th of July and patriotic music, whether it's September 30th or not. So, of course, they played Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to Be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the ones who died who gave that right to me. And I'll gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Now, I still get misty when, this, when they play these songs. And uh, I, I, I get all choked up. Um, hey, Adam, would you give me a Kleenex, please? I'm getting all choked up now. Uh, that's not the case. It's allergies. But just forgive me. You know, I, I don't see any, I would gladly stand up 
and defend her, but I don't think there's much cause for them. They're not going to call a 57-year-old dude to come uh, defend her. It's you young guys who are on their way out if, if, if it comes to that. I, I just want to say, I, I really, I get misty when the Olympics and someone wins a gold medal and the Star Spangled Banner is being played. I love fireworks. I love our country. I'm moved in incredible ways uh, by patriotism. But I also have to confess to you that sometimes I feel this tension between the love of country and my loyalty to Christ. In many ways over the past years, there's a form of Christianity that has developed that is so closely aligned to American patriotism that it's at times hard to distinguish where one line ends and another line begins. In the years since President Reagan, it almost became a requirement that if you were a good Christian, you also had to be a Republican. Some of you are too young to remember that. During this election cycle, I am torn apart trying to figure out where my duty to Christ and at the same time to our country lies. I'm trying to maintain some sort of equilibrium, some sort of balance and peace throughout the whole process. There's never been a period in my life that I can remember where Christians are so widely divided over a candidate, over where we stand, what we should be doing. The question I want to raise is this. Can we be both a good Christian and a good citizen of the United States? Or of any other country, for that matter? My goal in this series is to challenge all of us just a little bit. To call us back to a biblical kingdom perspective. Today's sermon is an introduction about what I want to speak about in the coming weeks, and I'm going to probably stay a little closer to my notes than I generally do because I don't want to go, I've tried to form my thoughts in a way that's coherent and non-offensive and biblical. I've done a lot of reading over the past several months and really can't get away from it, but I've read a lot of both blogs, articles, and I want, I'm trying to distill my thoughts into where do I stand? Who am I? And where should the body of Christ, from what I see as the biblical perspective, be in this relationship between God and our country? So I pray you'll give me grace as I share this, and please don't be offended. Uh, again, uh, I just pray through the Spirit of God that life would come to us. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, and in Matthew 22, there are a whole series of traps for Jesus, trap questions, trap issues, um, who, who, who's going to be married to who in heaven, and what should we do here, and your people, you, your followers did this, and I mean, they're just trying to get anything they can on Jesus in order to persecute him and bring him before, hopefully, the Roman authorities or religious authorities or somebody to eliminate him. 
So here's what happens in Matthew 22, verses 15 and following. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. It, this is called the buttering up stage of the discussion uh, where they're saying, yeah, we know you're not swayed. You, you're going to give us an honest answer. You, you better be careful when people start talking to you like that uh, because the shoe is about to drop. They say, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we don't, we don't catch the, the implications here. But remember, Israel is under Roman occupation. Though the Jews hated the Romans. They don't want to be under anybody's. Who wants to be under somebody else's occupation? I mean, it's really not a pleasant circumstance. So... Jesus is going to be trapped if he says, uh, yes, pay taxes to Caesar. It's the right thing to do. He, he, they know that probably a large segment of his followers are going to be angry with him. The Jews are going to be mad at him. On the other hand, if he says it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be trapped by the Romans. They're going to go immediately back to the authorities and tell on him. Hey, he's out there saying you shouldn't pay taxes. To Caesar. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. In the passage you know very well. Then he said to them, Give us Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Jesus answers in a way that says, Give to God what is God's, and to the country, to Caesar, the nation, what, is, what they deserve, what is owed to our nation. So I, I want to use this kind of outline that who should we follow, God or our country, to answer we should be giving to both what is due them. And so I've got five statements that I believe are five primary truths about a Christian's relationship to God. And I want to say these are my own, so go ahead and... If you don't like it, throw things. But these are my own, but I believe they're biblical principles that we can draw on. Okay, you with me? So five principles about our relationship to our country. First is this. Remember where your first allegiance lies. Where your first allegiance lies. Philippians 3, verse 20 in the New Living Translation says this. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. You see, we as Christians have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of the country in which we dwell, but we are citizens of heaven. Now, in spite of John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes forever, only one of those citizenships will last for all of eternity, and that is 
heaven. One of the principles I've tried to teach us at fullness over the years is this. What is eternal is what is real. Right? What is eternal is what is real. Now, we see a reality around us, but this is temporary. These chairs, this building, this floor, this roof, this body, it's all temporary. What matters is what is eternal. And that is the reality of things. That is, that is the things that should matter. So our citizenship, which is in heaven, we're, this is not our home. We're just a passing through, folk. So therefore, where does our primary allegiance lie? It, it, it lies with God. The question is, to whom or what is glory due? Where should we be placing our praise, our glory, our hope, our future? It's in God and in God alone. If love for country comes before love and service to Jesus, your priority is wrong. Simple as that. Let me say it again. If love for country becomes more than love and loyalty and service to Jesus, then our priority is, is wrong. Our first allegiance, first. There can only be one number one. Elton Trueblood in a great book on the Ten Commandments says, the difference between one and two is the biggest difference between any two numbers. Because there can only be number one. As soon as you get to number two, everything is no longer singular, it's plural, whether it's two or a billion. His illustration is this, I only have one wife. Right? After one... I'm a polygamist. You know, really, whether it's two, three, four, five, I can only have one, number one. Our primary allegiance is to our Heavenly Father. The second point is this. Resist allowing national pride to overcome our Christian wisdom. Resist allowing national pride overcoming our Christian wisdom. I already mentioned I'm proud to be an American. But I can't allow that pride for our nation and heritage to supersede godly or Christian wisdom. Do you not feel like at times all wisdom has gone out the door? Listen, by the way, if you came to this service or next week or the week after expecting me to tell you who to vote for, it ain't going to happen. But I'm going to say this, and I said it last week. What matters is spiritual wisdom. Wisdom from on high. The power of the Holy Spirit that comes and indwells us and it fills us and leads us to walk in life. Listen to these passages. Ephesians 5 and following. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We need to walk in a way in which we redeem the time and try and understand the will of the Lord. In James 3, 17, it says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, 
full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Show me. Show me where that is taking place today in the political arena. So therefore, what is my implication? What we are experiencing is not a spiritual wisdom. It, it meets none of those characteristics. I mean, really, have you ever thought you would hear the language you would hear on CNN as a result of the political campaign? Uh, my, my daughter's school, Olivia, she's in 11th grade, and they're, they're supposed to gather and watch the debate this Wednesday night and then have a pizza party after. And, and I, I'm a little reluctant, honestly. I don't want my daughter to possibly hear the things that are being said. What, what does that say to us? It says this. Look, I, I, don't want to, I, I want to be a person who walks in godly Christian wisdom. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20 says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you should... I'm sorry, I'm going to get the passage. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight, as it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Here's a simple picture. There's a wisdom of this world, and then there's the wisdom of God. We need to be people who walk in the wisdom of God. And, you know, unfortunately, there are times where it's very clear. Isn't it? I mean, it's here, that is not the wisdom of God. But there are other times where it starts to draw close enough together, you're like, God, where, where are you in all this? After World War I, Germany had been so crushed and defeated that at the Treaty of Versailles, they, the way the treaty was formed, as you know, your history, it, it, it ruined the German economy. It ruined uh, a nationalistic spirit within the nation of Germany. They were so oppressed after the end of World War I that it left a vacuum where a man could step in and say, I want to rally us back to a place of being prideful about what does it mean to be a German. And into that void stepped Adolf Hitler uh, and tried to rally the people back to a place of nationalism. Hitler recognized that the, the Germans were a very religious people. Uh, Lutheranism uh, was uh, the state church. And that if he could get the church, Christians, behind him, then it would be a large segment of the population that would follow after and head on down the road. So, over the years, Hitler usurped the church and got the church to to almost believe that he was the Messiah, a messianic kind of version that was going to lead Germany back to prominence so that much of the church joined in with this nationalistic spirit. Now, at the first, it was not so divided that you couldn't tell that it was where it ended up. But at some point along the way, it became clearer and clearer and clearer that the gap between what Hitler was proclaiming and what the church was supposed to stand for were no longer compatible. 
People like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up against the church and said the church has become corrupt, started a thing called the confessing church. We're going to confess the Bible. We're going to confess the faith. We're not going to follow, follow along. The German Christians let national pride supersede Christian wisdom. And as a result, the next thing you knew, you had Nazi flags draped across communion tables. You had in front of the Berlin Cathedral nothing but Nazi flags. So that the gap between Nazism and Christianity was too close. Now, at least we think that we are immune to this kind of nationalistic spirit that at times supersedes. This is a picture from an evangelical church in America with a flag draped across the cross. There's this blending at times of what we believe to be our Christian faith and nationalism. We have accepted at times that the United States is the new Israel. And we claim passages like 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. That passage was for the nation of Israel, for the people of God. Here's my question. If my people, if that's God calling, if my people, who are my people today? It's the church. It is not. It is not America. It is the church across all boundaries, across all borders. We are, we are the people of God. Now, I'm not saying, again, please don't hear me say, oh, that means we, we dump everything about our country that's good and pray for it. No, pray for I'm going to come and write to this point. But I want to say, don't allow national pride to supersede the wisdom of Christ. Let me go on. Because, by the way, there is only one gospel. There's only one good news. And it has to do with who we are in Christ. Uh, you still with me? Okay, here we go. Recognize the primacy of the Word of God. Recognize the primacy of the Word of God. You know this scripture passage, the second, sorry, second, Second Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. Here's what I'm afraid of in America. The Constitution is a wonderful document. We talk about it as being a living thing. But I want to tell you this. There is only one Word of God. The Constitution, as good as it is, is not the Word of God. There's only one thing that is God-breathed and is really useful to all of these, and it's, it's, God's, it's God's Word. There's an example in the book of Acts where Peter and John are hauled before the authorities and commanded not to teach about Jesus anymore. And at some point they say this, we must obey God rather than men. Now, for most of us in our lifetimes, we have not been challenged to the point where 
Civil authority commands us to do things that are in direct violation to the Word of God. I believe, however, there's coming a day when that may not be true. And at some point, we will have to make a stand to say, God's Word is true. Let everybody else be made a liar. But to do that, we have to recognize the primacy of the Word of God. Now, let me just say this, too. Just because we may have to make a stand against something, a law that robs us of our religious liberty, our religious freedom, I, I have no idea where this could go. I'm not trying to be a fear monger. I just want us to, I want to help prep us for whatever the days hold. Whatever the days hold ahead, I just want us to be ready. And to be ready, we have to have the proper perspective, and we have to be well prepared. Preparation, I've, I've said this over the years, I, I can't predict what tomorrow holds. Because most of us operate in our lives by predict tomorrow and then plan for it. But I believe God is calling us to prepare, get ready, and then when he does what he's going to do, whatever it might be, then we participate with him. So against prediction and planning stands preparation and then participation. And part of that is an understanding of what God's Word says. By the way, let me just say that when it comes a time that we directly oppose something, that doesn't mean we don't have to obey any laws. I read recently about a couple and their defense for disobeying the law was this, that they did not believe in abortion, and therefore now they didn't have to pay taxes nor obey traffic laws. Let's be reasonable. You know, we may have to stand against something, but we still are apart. Now, the men in this passage, the apostles, they knew what they said was going to have consequences. They weren't trying to get out of the consequences, but they were saying, no matter what the consequences are, we have one loyalty, and it is to Christ. At least uh, you think I'm heading us down a road of total disobedience. Resolve to pray for your leaders. Resolve to pray for your leaders. When the Bible was written, by the way, the known world was under Roman occupation. It was a king, a Caesar. I mean, it was, it was a rough time. We have no idea. And yet, listen to what Paul says to those who are under this tyrannical rule. He says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's encouraging the church to pray for their leaders. He also says in Romans, everyone must submit to himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, you may be saying, wait a minute, I thought you just told us. God, give us wisdom. 
This is where godly wisdom, biblical knowledge is going to come because Paul is saying don't take lightly standing against the civil authorities. Notice, too, that the encouragement here is to pray for our leaders, not against our leaders. I mean, I've heard too many prayers within the church that are backhanded against leader prayers. You know, we're a little more subtle, but uh, God tells us to pray for our leaders, even if the president and representatives in Congress aren't our first choice. We're still called to pray for them. By the way, if Paul can pray for Caesar and Nero who are persecuting the church, don't you think we can pray for President Obama? Hello. <laughs> now, I may pray that some of the policies don't get instituted. I think it's reasonable to pray about policies and that godly policies be instituted, but I'm still called to pray for my leaders. Pray that they will surround themselves with godly advisors. Pray that the Spirit of God would minister life to them, that God would speak to, they'd have a sensitivity to hear the voice of God. There are a lot of ways I can pray for our leaders. How's that going to work coming up on November 9th? no matter who gets elected. This week, Max Lucado wrote a blog. He said this, We are really ready for this presidential election to be over. We're ready for an end to the rancor and tackiness. Voters on both sides feel frustrated, even embarrassed by it all. There is a visceral fear and angst about the result. What if so-and-so wins? When we wake up to November 9th, post-election, when the confetti is swept away and the election is finally over, what will we see? I have a prediction. I know exactly what November 9th will bring. Another day of God's perfect sovereignty. He will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, president, or ruler, and it won't on November 19, 2016. The Lord can control a king's mind as he controls a river. He can direct it as he pleases, no matter who the king is or queen. He closes by saying this. Understanding God's sovereignty over the nations opens the door to peace. When we realize that God influences the heart of all rulers, we can then choose to pray for them rather than fret about them. Rather than wring our hands, we bend our knees. We select prayer over despair. I don't know if you've seen the clip of Andy Stanley's sermon not too long ago, where he wanted to talk to all the adults about their worry and fear about the election. His bottom line was this. Quit it. You're scaring the children. And his real point was this. We're teaching our children that God is not in control. Our, our ultimate 
our ultimate attitude about this, if we're not careful, is that, oh, if so-and-so gets elected, how do we combat that? We recognize the sovereignty of God, and we choose to pray for our leaders. This leads to my final point, which is this. Respect those who differ from you. Respect those who differ from you. I, I mentioned last week, but it's going to probably amaze you who's in heaven. I don't know what, our, what we're going to be, our thought processes are like in heaven, but we're going to be like, how the heck did they get in here? Do you know they're going to be Democrats in heaven? They're going to be Republicans in heaven. There might even be an independent or two. I would say this, they're going to be Catholics in heaven. Protestants in heaven. There might be a communist or two. I mean, we, we equate Christianity with a political economic view that is Americanized. We got to get over it. The kingdom of God is so much bigger. And one of the ways we can do that is by respecting those who differ from my opinion and my view. I'm almost reluctant to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Eight years ago, we had another election where President, now President Obama, was running. And after the election, I, re I remember talking to my mother, who was one of the godliest people. I mean, for those of you who knew my mom before she passed away, she's one of the godliest women I've ever met, ever known. Um, and this was the last election she ever voted in before she passed away. I was talking to her, and I said, hey, Mom, who do you vote for? She's like, I voted for Barack Obama. And I'm like, what? What? I mean, my mom's like the most conservative, white, Christian woman. And I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? What did you do? And she's like, I, I, she was raised in the South in Georgia, during segregation, and she said, I want to see an African-American president before I die. Now, I wanted to argue with her about her policies. I wanted to say, what are you doing to it? You know, I, so I get, I'm giving my hand away about who I voted for at least eight years ago. We have to respect those who differ from us. We have to, we have to love those who are different from us. Luke 6, 31 says this, but love your enemies. Do good to them. Listen to this. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Man, this Christian ethic, it is really hard. I'd rather love you than lend you my money, honestly. Then your reward will be great, and you, you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. These are the words of Christ, by the way. 1 Peter says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. 
love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Most Christians can't even get along with other Christians. I mean, just a, a minor point of theology has caused us to have divisions that are just catastrophic for the body of Christ. We, we, we have to learn to respect those who differ from us. Because I, I can pretty well guarantee you, if you look to your right or the left, you're going to see somebody who differs than you. You just don't know it yet. You probably haven't talked to them long enough to know that they differ from you. Respect, love, giving. To me, that's the Christian ethic that will, will overcome the madness that we are in right now. If we go out with this fearful attitude and start putting on Facebook that you can't possibly be a Christian if you vote for Trump or you can't possibly be a Christian if you vote for Clinton, we have, we're closing the boundaries of what it means to be able to love and respect one another. Yes, you can possibly be a Christian. Because, you know, here's the bottom line. You can still be a Christian and be wrong. Since, I mean, I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just saying, all of life is this. You're wrong a lot. And if having to be right in every decision of your life is what makes you a Christian, we're all sunk. Apart from the grace of God, we have no chance. But God's grace is greater than my sin. God's grace is greater than my stupidity. The wisdom of God goes beyond the foolishness of men. It's time for us to in one sense, relax, and another sense, to get to work. Relax where, you know, I'm not going to get emotionally bent out of shape here, but get to work in prayer. Get to work in loving people. Get to work in sharing the gospel. You want to see our nation change? Start drawing people to the name of Christ. I mean, we sang about it. We proclaimed it. If indeed there is no other name, Let's draw people to that because it's our only hope. Matthew 6.33 says this, but seek what? First, his kingdom and his righteousness. Everything else will be added after that. Here's my premise for this series on God and country. It is in that order, God, country. Remember, our first allegiance goes to God. Resist allowing national pride to overwhelm Christian wisdom. By the power of the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, right? We talked about this last week. We have the mind of Christ. Recognize that God's Word is primary in all of our lives. Resolve to pray for our leaders and respect, love, Lend to those who are different from you. Lord Jesus, I pray that now you would direct our hearts and our minds. We are inundated with a culture and a media that is kicking us in the teeth.
and we've received the fear of this age. Lord, today we turn our hearts and our eyes to you. You are the sovereign God of the universe. You rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives, and we are so grateful. Lord, let peace rule and reign in, in us. May we be a people of prayer. May we love you with all that we are. May we respect those around us. God, give us wisdom. God, give us grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray that you'll be with us next week. We'll continue this fun. Um, by talking.